Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, again in verses 9 through 13. This morning we'll be looking specifically at verses 11 and 12. We looked at verses 9 and 10 last week as we began this uh, shorter series on prayer, looking at the model prayer, the disciples' prayer. Some of our Bibles have it subtitled the Lord's Prayer, how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what they ought to pray for. Uh, Last week we looked at those first two verses, verses 9 and 10. Uh, And saw there that Jesus invites us, he even instructs us to pray with perspective. Perspective to God as Father. Being mindful of his holiness and seeking his kingdom and his will in in all that we do and and, and in all that, that he intends to do in our lives. Now Jesus, after having taught his disciples that in this model prayer, then turns... To instruct us and and those who are listening to him then as he's preaching there at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Instructing uh, us to turn our attention to what we now need from God. So shifting our attention in prayer from, from who God is and what he desires to now what it is that we need from the Lord. Jesus here teaching his disciples to ask their father for what they need. Specifically daily sustenance and daily forgiveness. Friends, this morning I would hope that we would see from this text that God is inviting us to pray for his provision in our lives in a way that results in our greater understanding of his sovereign care and of his saving grace to us. As a result of our time spent in this word this morning, I would hope that you would be moved, you would be challenged, would be convicted to pray when you pray each day in such a way that reminds you of God's perfect provision and his unlimited forgiveness in your life. Let us, uh, without any, any further ado, turn our attention to God's word. And I would ask that you would stand with me uh, as we do each week in honor of the reading of God's word. And that you would uh, read aloud with me this week these verses that we know uh, often so well. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And they, these verses are on the screen behind me as well. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we look at specifically verses 11 and 12 this morning, we see first in verse 11 that Jesus invites us to pray for daily sustenance. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, a few things in life are as closely linked to our physical survival and well-being as food. And all the Baptists said, amen. Our, well, that was like, oh, man, y'all just like preach. Our very design by God as humans is as the union of soul and body. We are, as some have said, psychosomatic unities, psychosomatic beings. These bodies that God has given to us require a regular caloric intake. And while some of us could certainly do with a little more irregularity in our caloric intake, without any food, we also realize it will fairly quickly cease to live. Food is important to what we need to to survive every day. Food, though, is not our only physical need. So also our water to drink, shelter, clothing, even transportation. But here, as Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. 
food becomes a, a, an image. It serves as an umbrella term for all of the daily needs that we have, for all of the sustenance that we need in several different ways each and every day. And because these things are real needs, because we really do need food, we really do need clothing, we really do need shelter, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to God as they pray and to ask him to give what we need in the measure and in the time in which we need them. Give us this day our daily bread. That term daily bread should be understood the bread we need today or the bread we need day by day. Those of you who like to read out of the New Living Translation, you'll see in your copy of the Bible uh, that it is translated there. Give us today the food that we need. It's interesting that Jesus does not instruct his disciples to pray for monthly bread or annual bread, but daily bread. To pray for this measure of bread only day by day without worry for tomorrow or for the next week or for the next year is to trust entirely in God's good provision and God's good timing. For, his, uh, for, for us, his children, who have come to know God our Father through, his fa- through faith in his Son, Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus instructs us to pray. God, give us what we need today in your timing and in the measure that you know that we need it. In, in looking at this verse this week, I have asked myself the question, and I think it's maybe helpful for us to ask this question as well. Why does Jesus instruct us to pray for daily bread? If God knows what we need and God wants to give us those things when we need it and, and, and in the measure that we need it, why, was, why would Jesus instruct us to pray this way? Specifically after having prayed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, give us this day our daily bread. I think at least three things become evident to us in this passage. Jesus instructs us to pray for daily bread because first it reminds us that God is the source of all that we have. That God is the source of all that we have. Scripture is unequivocal on this point from even its first words in Genesis 1.1. That God is the creator of the universe and the ultimate possessor of all things. Psalm chapter, uh, or the 24th Psalm verse 1 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. All of it belongs to him. He created it. It is his to do with what he wants. He owns. He possesses all of it. I think we all too often look at the food in our pantries and in our refrigerators. And at the money in our bank accounts associated with our names. And cars in our garages with pride. Assuming it was we who have worked for these things. It is we who have saved for these things. It's we who purchased these things and who own these things. And while many of these are necessary to our well-being, like food, transportation, uh, uh, even finances and and shelter, many of these things being necessary to our well-being, recognizing that, we're, we're also tempted to rely upon our own efforts and abilities to provide for what we need day to day. I bought that food. I put this roof over my head. I put that money in the bank. That's mine. I did that. All the while, we conveniently forget that because God is the owner of all things, he created it. Anything that we do have, whether it's money, whether it's a house, whether it's children, whether it's a good job, even daily bread on our tables, all of it comes as a gift from God. And so uh, the Apostle James can say in James chapter 1 verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Roofs over our heads are good gifts. Loving wives and dear children are good gifts. Food on our table is a good gift. A car in the garage to take us to work where we can work to provide for our family by God's grace. That's all a good gift. It's good gifts from God. He owns it all. He manages it all. He stewards it all. He gives it to us in his timing and in his measure because all of it belongs to him. He's the source of everything. So for us to pray, as Jesus instructs, give us this day our daily bread, is for us to ask God, who owns all things, to grant to us Again, each day, the sustenance that we need day by day. He owns it all. It's his to give. So what you have or what you lack is by the hand of God. And he may so choose to take away or to give in proper measure to help you remember that he is the source of all that we have. Why does Jesus have us pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, first, because it reminds us that God is the source of all that we have. But secondly, because it reminds us that God, while he's the source of all that we have, he delights in caring for his children. Having thought rightly of God as the source of all things, we may begin to think or be tempted to think of him as some pagans do, as a God who gives and takes away on a whim. He's capricious. He's, he's flippant. He's sort of superficial. And, and, and you never know what, what God might do next. But notice in this prayer that Jesus does not instruct us to beg God for what we need, but rather to confidently ask for it. Give us this day our daily bread. This is precisely because God is, and Jesus is teaching us this in this passage, God is a good father who delights in caring for his children. Shortly after this model prayer, Jesus says to the crowds listening, Continuing in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 32. I'm going to read some of these verses. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He continues in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Similarly, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to His children? Friends, last week we saw from the beginning of this prayer in verse 9 that God is a loving, caring, wise Father who wants His best for His children. And so praying, give us this day our daily bread with confidence that God will provide in the right measure and the right time reminds us of the fact that our Father loves His children and He delights in personally meeting their needs. Why do we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Because it reminds us that God's the source of everything. It reminds us that God delights in giving good gifts to his children. But thirdly, because it reminds us, and Jesus is teaching us uh, to, to pray this, because it reminds us that food is not our greatest need. Give us this day our daily bread actually points us to a greater need beyond food, beyond water, beyond shelter, beyond clothing. All of these things are real daily needs that we have. Yes, not denying that. Yet while they are real needs, they serve best to remind us of needs that are even greater than these. 
Our greatest need, my greatest need, your greatest need, friend, is to know and to walk in fellowship with our Creator, with our Father, God, who meets these needs. That is our greatest need. And the Bible helps us in several places to know this and to understand this, that our greatest need is not food, that our greatest need is God and a right relationship with Him. In the wilderness, in, uh, between Exodus and, and Deuteronomy, God provided for the people of Israel who he brought out of slavery in Egypt. He provided for them daily bread in the form of manna. Every single day, God providing manna for them with which to make bread. And he even instructs them not to gather more than they need for the day on any given day that they are to go out and gather the manna. In fact, he says, if you take more than what you need for the day, whatever you have left over will rot the next day. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8, verse uh, 3, Moses teaches uh, teaches us there, says there that God does this. He provides manna for the Israelites in Egypt, not only for their physical sustenance, but in order to teach the Israelites to seek sustenance in the promises of God, in the word of God. Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses says this, He, God, the Lord, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This same verse, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Those words are cited verbatim, word for word, by Jesus when he is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Satan tempts Jesus to, to, as he's fasting for 40 days, to turn the rocks into bread. He turns to Satan with the word of the Lord saying, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is, is sustenance to our souls. God's word is, is life-giving. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the apostle Peter says, Like newborn infants, he's here speaking to the church, Long for, desire, crave the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Friends, far more than bread for today. We need bread for our souls. And so in John chapter 6, the gospel of John, as we see crowds coming to Jesus, gathering around him, following him because he miraculously multiplied bread and fish to feed 5,000 people one day. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, we read Jesus saying, much to their consternation and frustration, he says, beginning in verse 48 of John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my own flesh. Friends, praying, give us this day our daily bread reminds us that more than bread for the weeks and years to come, We need bread that will feed and sustain our souls. Friends, we need the word of God. 
We need Jesus, the word of God in flesh, the promise of God fulfilled, the crucified and risen Lord to give life to our souls that are dead because of sin. And praying, give us this day our daily bread, teaches us that we need far more than just wheat and oil and water thrown together and cooked in an oven for a little while to sustain us for 24 hours. We need the very word of God, the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Savior, to sustain us each and every day and for eternity. So friend, as you pray and as you ask God for your physical needs and for your daily sustenance, as you pray in trust, I, I, I pray that you would I ask you, entrust your daily needs to God who, you know, and can be confident has already satisfied your eternal need. Our greatest need is, is not bread for today. It's not water for today. It's not shelter. It's not clothing. Our greatest need is to have Our souls made right with God who has created us to know and to love and to worship him. And by our own sins, we have broken that relationship in our own ability to to pursue that relationship on our own. Our greatest need broken from God is to have new life, to have our souls born again. God's word tells us that, that he does that for us. When we could do nothing about our sinful condition, God does everything to make us right with him. He sends his son, his word in the flesh, Jesus, to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins, to be raised from the dead so that anyone, scripture says, places faith in him would be saved. They would have eternal life. Friend, God, who has satisfied your eternal need to be right with him by faith in Jesus, can be trusted to care daily for your ongoing physical needs. Jesus teaches us in verse 11 to pray for daily sustenance. And in verse 12, he teaches us to pray for daily forgiveness. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, in teaching his disciples to pray for forgiveness, Jesus is not saying that we need to pray daily for new salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you who are justified to God by faith in Jesus need new justification every day. That's not what he's he's saying. Certainly our salvation is as secure day to day as it was when we first placed our faith in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. That doesn't change. Here, though, Jesus is leading his followers, his disciples, to pray for daily pardon from the sins that we commit even after having been saved by faith. Jesus says to pray, forgive us our debts. Now, the word debt is a special word that implies not a financial debt, but a moral debt. Sins, offenses against God, offenses against other people, incur a moral charge against the goodness and holiness of God. In offending him, we have placed ourselves in a position of owing something to God for the offense that we have brought against him. To pray for forgiveness of these debts is to pray that God would not, would not only, uh, excuse me, is to pray that God would not hold against us the debt that we owe for consciously committing these transgressions. It is to, in a sense, uh, uh, purchase on credit far more than we could ever uh, repay. In, in, in fact, purchasing on credit uh, uh, something we can never repay. And we are asking God to overlook that debt that we cannot pay. To, to not demand that we pay, to not send us to collections, but instead to absorb the hit himself. The prayer for forgiveness comes tied to, we see, the condition of one, uh, one's own forgiveness of moral debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Jesus says. 
that little conjunction, two-letter word in English, as. As we forgive our uh, debtors means like. It means just as, in the same manner as, to the same degree as. So we could read verse 12 this way. God, forgive us our debts in the same manner, to the same degree, uh, commensurate with the way that we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is instructing that we pray for forgiveness from God for our sins against him in a manner keeping with our own forgiveness of others who have sinned against us. Ask the question, if God's forgiveness in your life was dependent upon how well you forgive those who sin against you, how much of God's forgiveness could you actually hope to attain? I want to ask the question of verse 12 that we also asked of of verse 11. Why does Jesus instruct us this way? Because it seems kind of odd that, that he would say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So why does Jesus instruct us to pray for forgiveness from God in the same manner in which we forgive others? Well, for at least two reasons. First, it teaches us about the extravagance of God's forgiveness. To pray, God, forgive me my moral debts against you as I have forgiven those who have moral debts against me reminds us about the extravagance of God's forgiveness. Here's what I mean by that. Our sins, friends, Christian, are far more deadly than often we care to admit. Your sins, Christian, not only have separated you from your loving Father in heaven, but they also made your soul effectively dead. Totally incapable of wanting, even doing anything righteous on your own. That's what sin has done to us. Your sins killed your ability to please God and to be holy. And no one else bears responsibility for your sins, friend, but you. Your sins, your crimes against God have earned the penalty, have earned the sentence of everlasting punishment, Scripture tells us. But this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. This you can find, it's there under the the notes page in your worship guide. Paul the Apostle writes to the church at Colossae, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, teaches us about the extravagance of God's forgiveness. The measure of God's forgiveness of your sins when you trust in Jesus Christ is nothing short of extravagant. It's nothing short of generous. The infinite debt that you owed God for your sin, and surely, friend, it is infinite, is unpayable. That unpayable debt has been entirely forgiven, extravagantly forgiven. It has been paid for. It has been canceled. And, and the way that it, your debt of sin against God has been canceled is in that he took it and he nailed it to the cross. In his son, where Jesus paid for that. So praying daily, forgive us our debts of sin against you, God. Teaches us afresh each day that our sins are deadly. That sins still incur moral debts. That sins still need to be confessed. Sins still need to be repented of. Especially by those who are already in Christ. As Paul writes in in, in Romans chapter 6. 
He says this to the church. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christian, you've been saved by God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ that you might live a different kind of life. And living a different kind of life means daily recognizing, confessing, and repenting of sins that you are aware of in your life. Praying, forgive us our debts, reminds us of the extravagance of God's forgiveness. But it also teaches us to exercise and to extend godly forgiveness to others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You notice that Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray an assumption. He's praying them, uh, teaching them to pray in such a way that they're assuming that they've already forgiven those who have sinned against them. By teaching us to pray, forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is teaching that the one who has truly received forgiveness from God, who really knows the grace of God for the infinite debt of his sin against God's perfect holiness that person is able to recognize how great that debt was and can, by that example, the example of God's forgiveness, turn and extend grace and forgiveness to his brother, to his sister, who sins against him. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, we won't read all of this this morning. I'm just going to kind of summarize it, but you can go there this week. There in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, Jesus tells a parable to those that he's teaching that explains this concept of, of godly forgiveness, godly extravagant forgiveness to others. There, Jesus, in this parable, uses the example of a master who, who we understand to be the one in the parable who's representing God. This master who uh, forgives a servant who owed him the debt of an equivalent of 10,000 years' wages to exemplify how richly God has forgiven sins in Christ. There in that parable, you have a man who owed a master uh, uh, 10,000 talents, 10,000 years wages. Can you, can you imagine owing anyone 10,000 years wages? And the master looks at the servant. He's about to send him off to jail to repay the debt that can't be repaid. The servant begging for forgiveness, begging for mercy, receives from the master a total cancellation of his debt. Likewise, Jesus in this parable uses the example of the forgiven servant who, who then turns and demands a debt of three months wages from a fellow servant to demonstrate that the forgiven servant has neither understood uh, the vastness of the debt that he owed nor of the corresponding grace that was given. In that parable, the servant who is forgiven 10,000 years wages goes to his buddy who owes him uh, like a, a buck fifty for the vending machine. And demands that his friend pay back that dollar fifty, even though he personally has just been forgiven ten thousand years' wages. When the master hears about this, he brings that first servant back in and says, You know what? I'm not forgiving your debt. I'm going to require all of that from you. And in fact, because you haven't been able to show forgiveness to your friend who owed you a buck fifty for a bag of chips out of the vending machine, I'm going to have you put in prison, you and your family, until all of you can pay back what you owe me. If the first servant had understood the vastness of the debt that he owed, had that first servant understood the grace that was given to him, the measure of grace that was given to him, the implication Jesus is making is that that, forget, that, that servant who has been forgiven 
out of joy and knowledge of such a grand gesture of forgiveness toward him should have then all the more gladly, joyously, freely forgiven a lesser debt owed to him by his fellow servant. But because that first servant doesn't understand grace, because he didn't understand forgiveness, because he didn't understand the debt that he owed, he misses out on the ability to forgive others. And now he becomes responsible for paying back the debt that he himself incurred. Friends, when we know the weight of our own sin, that it is infinitely heavy, that it is infinitely burdensome, when you know that and you know the freedom, likewise, that comes in the grace of God to forgive that unbearable debt, that unpayable debt, we can see, we ought to see, rightly, the ease with which we can forgive and set free Time and again, those who sin against us. Christian, this too should cause us to evaluate whether we truly have a forgiving spirit. I invite you to ask yourself this morning, when someone offends me, am I quick to look beyond it because God in Christ has overlooked my sin? Or am I still holding a grudge against that brother or sister? Am I prone to absorb offenses laid against me as Jesus has absorbed my sin on the cross? Or am I still requiring recompense by those who have wronged me? More than just a teaching, more more than just teaching us to be quick to forgive and to be forgiving because God in Christ is forgiving to us. This prayer also teaches us that we ought to be slow to take offense. To have a forgiving spirit is not just to offer forgiveness when, when one is offended, but also to, to recognize what is truly offensive. Those who have truly tasted the grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus know what is truly sinful and what is truly offensive. They know the difference between being morally mistreated and merely disappointed. Christian, it's not always a sin against you when someone does not fulfill your expectations of them. In fact, often it is our expectations of others that are in themselves sinful and not the failure of others to fulfill them. Listen, it's not sinful for my daughters to not share my exacting and meticulous attention to detail, particularly when it comes to loading the dishwasher. (laughs) But it is sinful for me to be angry and upset with them when they don't put their shoes away where I want them to, when they don't put the bowls in the dishwasher the right place, when they don't put the forks where they're supposed to go, and they don't put their their dress-up clothes exactly where I want them. It is sinful for me to exact that from them. Knowing the truth of my own offense against God, friends, allows me to know that which is truly offensive. To distinguish between when I have been sinned against and when I am being sinful and expecting what I ought not expect or demand from somebody else. Sometimes when I feel offended, it's actually I who am the offending party. Sometimes when I feel offended, Sometimes when I feel like, like I need to, like, I, like I'm the one who, who, who needs to be repaid, it's actually I who need to seek forgiveness from others. When it is I who am truly offended, when it is I who am truly sinned against, friend, when you really are offended, when somebody really has incurred a moral debt against you, knowing how you have been extravagantly forgiven by God in Christ, It is I, it is you, it is we who can learn from God how to likewise generously forgive. 
So as you pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I would encourage you to allow your heart to be shaped by gospel-driven forgiveness and for gospel-driven forgiveness. This is, this is the, the, the picture of, of, in many ways, what it is to be a Christian. What it is to know the grace of God is to be able to extend that same grace to others who have sinned against us. And it doesn't mean that our grace shown to those who have sinned against us, that doesn't save them. That doesn't make them right with God. But we are absorbing the offense, not, not exacting, not requiring anything from them. But we absorb the offense that we might be, uh, that, that we might by our own initiative place ourselves back in right relationship with people who have wronged us. Friends, there is no better picture of the gospel than this. This is exactly what God does for us in Jesus. He, he takes, he looks at people who have infinitely offended him. I, I, I've said that a lot this morning, but I want it to weigh on you. I want our sin to weigh on us this morning because it needs to. We think too lightly of our sin. We think too lightly of our our disregard for for God's moral perfection. We think too lightly of the fact that we have offended God infinitely. You have. And for it, friend, you deserve an eternity in hell. That's what you deserve. You all know someone who's sinned against you. You all know someone who's broken your heart, who's betrayed your trust, maybe has, by an action, uh, potentially destroyed your relationship with them. You, you know that. You've been there. I don't have to preach to you about that. Think about how badly you were hurt in that situation when somebody just broke all the boundaries of that relationship that you had with them. Friends, that, to an infinite measure, is what we have caused God to feel by our sin. And this is God's grace. This is God's forgiveness that he looks upon we who have infinitely offended him and he absorbs the hit. He absorbs the offense. He doesn't require you to repay it because you can't. You could work the rest of your life. You could work for an eternity and never be able to pay back the debt of sin that you owe to God. And God in his grace has looked upon that sin He's taken that debt that you owe and he's placed it on the only one who could pay an infinite debt of, of, of moral depravity. He's placed it on his son and he said to his son, you're going to pay that debt in their place because you're the only one who can. So God himself absorbs the hit. He absorbs the, the, the consequence for our sin. And he lovingly extends a right relationship to you. If only you will trust in Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, son of God, made man, dying in your place, being raised from the dead. God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Friend, as you pray, allow your heart, allow your life this morning. Let, this, let, let your soul kind of marinate in this this morning, this gospel-driven forgiveness. Be shaped by it this morning and be shaped for it. Don't just receive God's forgiveness this morning as a result of knowing the gospel, but now in this week ahead, seek to extend it, to exercise it to others. Because in doing that, you're showing them a picture. However small, God's infinite, his extravagant forgiveness to you. So seek daily forgiveness through confession of sin. Seek daily forgiveness through repentance toward God. 
And friend, give daily forgiveness with Christ-like generosity to those who have wronged you and don't deserve it. Give it to them anyway. God, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray.